Welcome to the Philadelphia Personal Injury Lawyers Podcast, where we hope to give you all information about personal injury issues. Today, I'd like to talk to you about medical malpractice. Now, medical malpractice is a very complex area of the law, and the lawyer that you seek guidance from should be a specialist in medical malpractice law. Why? For several reasons. One, these are incredibly challenging and difficult cases. They involve intricacies of medicine. One of the most important reasons why you need a specialist in medical malpractice law is doctors and nurses and the people who are providing medical care to us all are heroes. And we all perceive them as heroes, and legitimately so. And so when they walk into a courtroom, they have an inherent advantage by each person on the jury. Each person on the jury has gone to a doctor. Each person on the jury loves their doctor. Each person on the jury has an inherent bias against a lawsuit against a doctor. And so in any medical malpractice case, you are starting behind. And that's why you need a lawyer who is a specialist in this area of the law. The second reason why it's incredibly difficult um, is because the lawyers who are hired by the medical malpractice insurance companies that insure doctors and hospitals are the best. The, the defense lawyers in the medical malpractice world are the best lawyers there are. So you need a lawyer who will be able to match the talent, the experience, the competence of those lawyers on the defense side. The third reason why you need a very experienced lawyer in medical malpractice is because each doctor that you may bring a claim against has the right to consent to whether or not the matter that you bring is settled. What do I mean by that? Let's say you're driving your car and you make a mistake. You're looking down at your phone to try to find that next podcast and you blow through the red light and you injure somebody in doing so. Well, your insurance company does not have to get your consent in order to settle that, that, that claim that that injured person may bring against you. But if you bring a claim against a doctor, that doctor has a clause in their insurance policy that says, you, doctor, have the right to consent whether we settle this case or not. So that's the third reason why it's very difficult, these, this area of the law. But now I'm about to tell you the fourth reason and the most important reason why you need an experienced medical malpractice lawyer. These cases are incredibly expensive. Why are they expensive? Because you need expert doctors in order to prove a medical malpractice case against a hospital or a doctor. And the doctors that you hire are going to have to exhaustively review all of the information in the case. 
and it could be you know hundreds and hundreds and thousands and thousands of pages of medical records it could be 15 20 depositions it could be a ream of material and these experts charge handsomely for their time so i will spend on a typical medical malpractice case in six figures in expenses well what does that mean what that means is that the injury has to be a catastrophic one it has to be an injury that causes death it has to be an injury that prevents you from being able to ever work again it has to be the kind of injury that is life altering because if it's not a life altering injury then unfortunately the costs to bring that claim to bring that lawsuit are going to far outweigh the potential recovery and in the end the client comes away with nothing um, and so these are the four reasons why I think it's incredibly important that you see a medical malpractice lawyer who is experienced, knowledgeable, and has the kind of tenacity to fight against the folks that you have to fight against. Well, some of the things that you have to look out for as to whether or not there is a medical malpractice case to begin with, I like to think that there are really seven different types of medical malpractice cases. And I hope I committed enough of this to memory to be able to tell you about it. But number one is a failure to diagnose. Physicians have a duty to listen to your symptoms, to then understand your signs, whether it be your vital signs, whether it be signs that are achieved as a result of some physical examination. They then have to do an assessment to determine based upon those symptoms and signs, what tests to do. And then based upon the accumulation of that information, a doctor makes a diagnosis. So one area of medical malpractice is the failure to diagnose. Because frankly, if you can't make a diagnosis, you can't treat properly. So a diagnosis is the sine qua non of a good medical care. Another area of medical malpractice is the failure to treat. Now, once the doctor determines a diagnosis or does not, may lead to either the wrong treatment or no treatment at all for the problem that you have. So failure to treat is another area of medical malpractice. A third area of medical malpractice that's often overlooked is the failure to give informed consent. Anytime a physician in Pennsylvania anyway, whereas where I practice, does a surgery, that physician is required themselves not to have some surrogate, not to have some nurse, not to have some physician's assistant, but the surgeon, him or herself, has to explain to you the risks and the benefits of the surgery. And if you are not properly informed about the risks and the benefits of the surgery, then you have not given what is known as informed consent. Other areas of medical malpractice include the failure to do the proper, proper testing, 
um, failure to intervene, uh, failure to monitor your care. Uh, these are the kinds of areas that medical malpractice can occur. One of the biggest areas of medical malpractice is the last one I'm going to tell you about. It's the failure to communicate. Right now, our medical care is driven by what is known as electronic medical records. It was something that was put in place by uh, through the Obama administration. And if you notice, maybe there's been a change in the way your doctors treat you from maybe 10, 20 years ago. It used to be that your doctor would talk to you, sit down, look at you, touch you, see how you reacted. My experience and the experience of my clients has been that doctors now have their backs to the patient. Instead, they're putting information into a computer because they're trying to get the information necessary in what is known as the electronic medical record. It was supposed to be a safety mechanism for us. It has created problems. It has created a barrier in the doctor-patient relationship. It has created a mechanism whereby records are created wrongly. Why? Why does this happen? Well, because the companies that create these um, electronic medical record systems have templates that are automatically put in place. So instead of the doctor writing down what your symptoms are, your doctor is checking boxes and the record is automatically being populated with what some um, computer company decided was the appropriate thing to populate your medical record with. It's very important that when you get treatment from your doctor, that you get a copy of your records. You need to see that the information that your doctor has recorded after one of your visits is accurately recorded because if it's not, you need to contact that doctor's office and let them know that the information that they've recorded is inaccurate. Why is that important? Because the next medical provider, whether it be your doctor or whether it be some other doctor relying upon your doctor's medical records, is going to be looking at that past record, relying upon it, and, and relying that it's accurate. If it's inaccurate, you're going to get inappropriate treatment. And that's what I say, lack of communication is a huge issue in medical care these days. I'll give you an example. Right now, I'm handling a case in which a woman went for a, an elective um, uh, carotid surgery to unblock her carotid artery, 70 years old, in great shape. But she had a blockage in her carotid artery, and her doctor thought, in order to prevent a future stroke, let's clean out your carotid artery. Everything went great in the surgery. But afterwards, the next day, she's still in the hospital, and she's about to be discharged, and she has some cognitive changes. She immediately, she, she can't, she temporarily can't speak. Um, and the doctors legitimately become concerned about why this is. They order what is known as a CT scan of the brain to see whether or not there, and of the carotid artery, to see whether or not what is known as a common complication of these surgeries has occurred, a reblockage of the carotid artery after the surgery. Everything's good so far, right? The doctors responded to the urgency. They, the doctors ordered a test. 
The doctors made sure the patient was stabilized. They do the test. And this is what happened. The test is done. The radiologist sees that it's a completely blocked carotid artery. The radiologist calls the critical result to the doctor who ordered the test. The doctor who ordered the test, however, was a critical care doctor. The critical care doctor and a neurologist responded to the initial event where the woman couldn't speak. The critical care doctor, without saying anything to the radiologist who called or called the critical care doctor with the, with the result, said to himself and nobody else, well, it's not my patient, it's the neurologist patient. So I'm not going to do anything. I'm going to assume the neurologist is going to look at the electronic medical record and communicate, you know, do what needs to be done. Meanwhile, the neurologist thought, well, the surgeon who did this surgery was there when the patient couldn't speak. He knew the test was being done. He will find out and he'll do what needs to be done. So nobody's talking to one another. Meanwhile, the surgeon who knew that this test result may show a completely blocked carotid artery and knew that the patient would need to be immediately taken back to surgery if it showed a completely blocked carotid artery, went into surgery with another patient electively and said to a nurse, contact me in the OR if that test comes back that it's completely blocked because I've got to get my patient back into the OR to unblock that. The nurse says the surgeon never said that to her. So nobody communicates with anybody. This woman sits with a completely blocked carotid artery, which is bringing the essential blood to her very sensitive brain. And six hours later, she completely strokes out. She spends the next 14 days in hospice and she dies. 70 years old, completely healthy, otherwise dead because of a failure to communicate a critical test result. So that's why I say lack of communication in our hospitals, amongst our doctors, amongst our medical care providers is a primary reason for medical malpractice. Medical malpractice can occur anywhere at any time. One of the common places that it occurs is in the emergency department. Um, there are many critical pathologies that an emergency department, the nurses and the doctors who work there, have a duty to understand and treat those injuries that could kill you. You go into an emergency room and you have a broken arm, that's not going to kill you. If you go into the emergency department with shortness of breath, and you have a prior history of blood clotting, well, that could be a pulmonary embolus, and that needs to be treated immediately. So the broken arm patient shouldn't be treated before the patient with shortness of breath. What happens in an emergency department is called triage. The, many people come to the emergency department, and there are um, numerous different kinds of ailments, and people come for different reasons. Some people come for insurance reasons. Some people come because they don't have a primary care doctor. And some people come because they feel that their life may be in danger. 
it's the job of the emergency department to ferret out, to figure out which are the sickest patients, which are the ones who are likely to die if we don't do something immediately, urgently. And so that is the kind of problem that can occur um, in an emergency department. There are radiology errors, radiology mistakes, uh, meaning that when a doctor orders a test like an x-ray or a CT scan, what happens is a technologist does the actual test themselves. Um, let's say it's an ultrasound. Um, the images that an, a doctor gets to review of an ultrasound are entirely dependent upon the skill of the ultrasound tech. So if the ultrasound tech does not have the requisite abilities to understand why you're there, why you're having this test, what to look for, maybe the right picture is not taken. And then the doctor can't diagnose a problem that may exist because the picture wasn't taken properly. In all circumstances, your radiologic studies, our CT scans, our MRIs, our x-rays, they're being read by doctors who you'll never meet and you'll never know the name of unless you read their reports. They're called radiologists. These are really, really bright people who sit in a dark room and all they do all day long is look up the computer images that's next. They see a complaint optimally. And then they try to look at what they're seeing to see if there is any problem that can be correlated to the complaint that is on that image. And they're doing this quickly. They're doing this very quickly. And mistakes can be made. And if mistakes are made, maybe a cancer is missed. Um, this can be life-altering. This can be deadly. Um, so these people who you never meet are dictating a lot about what your care is. So one of my recommendations um, in an earlier podcast, and I'll repeat it here, is every time you go to the doctor, regardless of what doctor it is, get your medical record. Included within the medical record, if you have had an x-ray or a radiologic study, is a report from that radiologist. And you are also entitled to have the actual copy of the study itself. You can have all three of those things and it's your right to have all of those three, three things. And I think that it's your obligation. I don't mean it's your duty. I don't mean it's, you know, something that you can be faulted for if you don't do it. I think that it's important for you and maybe obligation is too strong a word, but I'm, I'm really care. I, I really don't want people to be victims of medical malpractice. I'm trying to give you advice in this podcast to see so that you don't have to call Tony Barada. I don't want you to have to call me. I look at about 300 potential medical malpractice cases a year. I take maybe five to 10 of those cases. I try to give each person the opportunity to tell me their story. I'm extremely cautious and careful about the cases I take because of how expensive they are, how difficult they are, and because of how much time, energy, and of my life that I have to give to these cases. So if I take a case, that's, that's something I can't work on for somebody else. 
So I have to be very selective about what I do. And any lawyer who is worth their salt in doing medical malpractice will tell you exactly the same thing. But that doesn't mean that malpractice wasn't committed simply because I'm not taking your case. It means that my business model may not allow me to take your case because maybe you weren't sufficiently, you're, you're, you're catastrophically injured enough. Hopefully, that's the reason why. But nonetheless, you may have suffered an injury that is really debilitating and life-affecting for you. I would like you to avoid that situation. And the way, one way to avoid that situation, it's not foolproof, is to get your medical records, get the radiologic reports, get the radiology studies themselves. A patient who asks their doctor for that information, the doctor will start being more careful because he knows or she knows that you're watching. He knows that it's not simply blind trust. There is no doctor and no nurse who is trying to do anyone harm. But this is a business. Medicine is a business. Medicine is a business that is driven by money like any other business. Medicine is a business that is driven by the dollars that insurance companies, Medicare, Medicaid pay to these doctors and nurses. All of them graduate from medical school wanting to help you. And all of them are in a system which is designed to get you treated as quickly as possible with as minimal treatment as possible, spending as little dollars as possible. And it's your duty, your obligation to protect yourself. So please, I don't want you to have to call me. Thank you for joining me with the uh, Philadelphia Personal Injury Lawyers podcast. I hope the information that you've learned today about medical malpractice cases has been helpful. And I look forward to you joining us in future episodes. If you have any questions, please call my office at 215-914-8132. Our website is www.baradalawfirm.com. And you can reach me personally by my direct email at Tony at BaradaLawFirm.com.